All right, this is a big pulpit. I can bring my lunch up here. I've got lots of room to work, for sure. It's uh, been a couple weeks now, uh, but I'm excited to be back in uh, the Gospel of Luke with you. This is a uh, great gospel. If you'll take your Bibles and open to uh, Luke, this is a, a place where we get to see Jesus and what God's doing through Jesus, and there is uh, literally nothing more important than that. And so uh, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 40 through 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56, which uh, maybe seems like a simple enough story at first. I know if you look down at it because it's about uh, Jesus and a man named Jairus and a uh, woman who was sick, which is a a story actually that we probably heard in Sunday school. Uh, it's pretty familiar, I think. Though, uh, if you look a little more closely, it's a little unique in that it is two stories in one. The heading in my Bible says Jesus heals a woman and Jairus' daughter. And Luke doesn't usually do that. He doesn't usually tell two stories at once. In fact, he doesn't do that ever, except for here. So that's different for sure. But even with that difference, the stories themselves are, are pretty simple. They're healing stories, and yet I think they're part of an answer to one of the Bible's most difficult questions. Uh, not the whole answer, they don't do all the work, but they do help us as we think about one of the most difficult questions about the Bible, really. Now, obviously, if you read the Bible, you know the Bible's got lots of difficult uh, questions. There are parts that are easy, and there are parts that are definitely hard to understand, which isn't too surprising, actually, because uh, God wrote this book, and God's God, and he created a universe, and so when he wrote a book, you would expect that there would be parts that would be a little hard to understand, and there are all kinds of things we might wonder as we study the scripture, but at the same time, there are certain questions, obviously, that are especially important and, and challenging. And one question that is especially challenging, if you read the Old and New Testament together, you decide to read the whole thing, is how the Old and New Testament relate. In fact, that is kind of the question. You find people who are experts in the Bible who will say, this is the question actually, not just one question among many, the question. Because here you open up your Bible, and you see that you've got these two parts, Genesis through Malachi first, and then uh, Matthew through Revelation second, and they're both great, and they're both amazing, but how do these two parts go together? That's a really important question, and not just theoretically either, not just uh, for people who are interested in thinking about complicated things, but practically for all of us, because the Bible is a story about salvation. That's why you want to be an expert in the Bible, because this is about life or death. Eternal life or eternal death. God did not just write this book to satisfy your curiosity about things that do not matter. God wrote this book to help you understand how salvation works, how he rescues, how he delivers. This is a story about how God is making himself look great by providing salvation from sin and the consequences of sin for a certain group of people. 
And we all need that. And yet, when you open up your Bible and you start reading, at first you find that when God is talking about salvation, he seems like he's talking a lot about this group of people called the, Jew, the Jews, uh, the nation of Israel, mostly. A lot of the Old Testament is about Israel. I mean, just the word Israel is mentioned something like 2,500 times in the Old Testament. So it's hard to miss. But I guess in case you somehow do, Luke opens up this gospel, the book that we're studying, in the first chapter by bringing in a number of experts, Old Testament experts, right off the bat, really godly people, to give us a short summary of what we need to know from the Old Testament if we're going to understand what he's about to write regarding Jesus. And Luke makes clear as he introduces them that we can trust them, as the first is introduced by an angel, which is a pretty good introduction, and we're told the second is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we know that they're saying things that are true, and they're talking about salvation. That is their subject. As they read the Old Testament, that's what they're getting from it. And you know what they were saying they were expecting, what they're focused on? They are focused on God saving the Jews. He has helped his servant Israel. This is Mary, maybe you remember. As he spoke to our fathers, he has raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. This is Zechariah. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. It's Israel, Israel, Israel. And of course, we're not Israel. And so we might wonder, reading all that, since we're not Jews, is this about us? How do we get to be part? You know, if, if this is about salvation, do we have to become Jews? Do we have to become part of the nation of Israel? Is that how salvation works? Which I know maybe sounds funny to us, though, if you're coming on Wednesday nights as we're working our way through the Old Testament, it won't sound as funny to you. And it is actually how some people thought of it. A lot of people in Jesus's day. They didn't have a lot of hope for the Gentiles, but if there was hope at all, they would have thought it would have come from identifying yourself with the Jewish people. In fact, an illustration, you might remember Luke chapter 7, when the leaders of the Jews came to Jesus about that Gentile centurion, what was their argument for Jesus helping them? Luke chapter 7, verse 4, they said, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built the synagogue, which is kind of how the average human thinks God works, actually, even if he hasn't read the Old Testament. The average person expects maybe not so much that God just loves the Jews or something, but that God loves people and helps people because of something special he sees in them that sets them apart, which if you read the rest of the New Testament is not how it says salvation was working. This is not how it says salvation was working at all. Paul writes a whole letter even called Galatians to people who were getting confused where he says pretty much that if you think that salvation works like that, where you have to set yourself apart and there basically become a Jew by, by getting circumcised for Jesus to save you, then you are missing the whole point. You're messing up the gospel super badly. We do not get 
the righteousness we need, the approval we need by works of the law, by things we do, even things that are in the Old Testament. And part of why Luke writes this gospel, actually, is to take us back to Jesus and the events that took place with Jesus to help us understand that. And in a sense, prove through Jesus's life what Paul was saying about salvation. He and Paul were friends. To understand Luke, you have to understand that he and Paul were friends. And what Paul was explaining, writing his letters, Luke demonstrates through stories about Jesus. And I'm not going to preach the whole gospel again, but you remember at least that first Luke begins by saying Jesus is definitely the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel. Definitely. So Luke's super strong about that. The story of the New Testament and what God's doing through Jesus is not totally disconnected from the old. And so even at the beginning, we've got these angels speaking, saying that, and we've got prophecies saying that, and we've got what happened with John the Baptist demonstrating that, and we've got Jesus's genealogy. We've got all kinds of proof. Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament said about salvation. And yet, at the same time, Luke makes it pretty obvious, too, that something kind of unexpected definitely is happening because Jesus keeps getting rejected by the Jews. Luke chapter 4, verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Luke chapter 5, verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke chapter 6, verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And the last couple of chapters we've been looking at, uh, chapters 7 and 8, it, it's gotten even more intense, to the point where Jesus starts speaking in parables. And Luke makes clear that's a transition for Jesus. Something new is happening. And he shows us that even Jesus' disciples are confused about why he's not being more clear. And Jesus basically says that since the people aren't listening, his ministry is going to become like this Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, where he's speaking and Israel's going to be rejecting, not listening to him, and producing more and more judgment for themselves. You know Isaiah, Isaiah came before Israel was sent into exile, warning them about exile, but they wouldn't hear. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah and says, that's basically what's happening here now with me, which is just so sad, but doesn't mean that there's not hope, actually, because Jesus still is providing salvation. That's a big part of Luke's point. And so we see him cleansing, we see him forgiving, but the thing is, we're getting hints that he's going to be saving people we never would have expected, or at least that the religious people in Jesus' day didn't expect. And the last few passages we looked at gave a big old preview of that, starting back in chapter 8, verse 4, where Jesus gives this illustration of what's happening and says to his disciples that the response you're seeing with a few people accepting and most people rejecting, think of it like a farmer sowing seed. And I'm preaching the word, Jesus is saying, and you see these different things happening, but you have to understand the problem isn't with the seed, it's with the soil. 
And then Jesus gives a serious warning next. He says, verse 16, that no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And so he's talking about the gospel, revelation about what God's doing through him and describing it like a light and saying that lights are not meant to be hidden. And so right now, Jesus is speaking in parables, sure, because the Jews aren't responding, but God did not send him into the world to make everything more confusing in the long run, but to make things clear, to be a light. And you can be sure he's going to do that. Verse 17, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known or come to light. And so God's going to make very clear what he's going to do through Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 18, that's why you have to take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, he will be taken away. And so he's talking there about the disciples as the ones who have. And if they kept listening, they were going to learn more and more about what God's doing through him. But if the Jews at that time kept not listening, Jesus is saying, even though they thought they understood, the privilege they had was going to be taken away from them which is a big thing for Jesus to say, obviously, and marks a transition. And in case anyone who's listening, who has been reading the Old Testament, is confused and wondering, because they know the Jews are physically related to Jesus, if he means that that physical relationship is not enough for salvation, the next story in Luke 8 makes clear that being physically related to Jesus doesn't mean someone's automatically in. Verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And then Jesus does something really shocking in verse, verses 22 through 39. He leaves. Luke says he gets in a boat with his disciples and goes to the other side of the lake to liberate a Gentile region of Galilee from demonic opposition and to save someone who we have every reason to assume here is a Gentile. And Luke presents the Gentile Jesus saves as a model disciple. If you look at verse 35, you see he's sitting at the feet of Jesus and verse 38, he's begging to be with Jesus. And yet at the end of the story, Jesus doesn't bring him back to Israel he leaves him there, actually, in that Gentile region. As a missionary, he says, declare how much God has done for you. And so now we're really beginning to come face to face with this question. I think especially if you were a Gentile, not a Jew, reading this in the early church, and you're seeing what's happening, and you're hearing some of the things Paul is writing, and there's this debate swirling around, you need to be marked off as Jewish, to really have a relationship with Jesus, you don't need to be. You might look at what's happening with Jesus here and think, okay, okay, does this mean it's over for Israel then? Like, is that what's going on? Especially after the crucifixion and seeing all this persecution, it's like we're now kind of far from where we started, where we were looking at the Old Testament at the beginning of Luke and wondering if there's hope for us as Gentiles, now, after what happened with Jesus, we're looking at Jesus and starting to wonder, maybe, is there any hope for Israel? Is Jesus 
done. Verse 40. Now we're at verse 40, where Luke tells a couple stories which don't answer the whole question totally about Jews and Gentiles and the New and the Old Testament, but at least help us as we think about that question by giving insight into how salvation in the Bible works for whoever you are, which of course is the most fundamental, vital issue, the one you absolutely can't get wrong. And he begins with a Jew's Jew. And so you remember, again, maybe this is a story about two different healings, a woman and this man's daughter. And that's unusual for Luke, the way it's written with both of these stories combined. And whenever an author of the Bible does something unusual, it's for a reason. It is never random. (laughs) And so this is part of Luke's design here, linking them means we're supposed to compare the stories a little. And Luke starts with someone who pretty clearly represents Israel. So you look at this person and ask, is Jesus open to people like that? And verse 40, Luke begins by giving us the setting. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, which takes us back to what happened before Jesus went across the lake, really. In verse 19, you see that there was this crowd Then his mother and his brother came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And if you think of Luke like a play, the crowd's like a character in the play. But we lost track of them for a little while as Jesus went across the lake. But now here in verse 40, they're back and they're welcoming Jesus, which is a positive word for Luke. It's not just a greeting or noticing, it's welcoming. Though, of course, the crowds in the Gospels are notorious for being pretty fickle, but they're welcoming Jesus here. And it even gets a little better if we keep reading because Luke says next that they were all waiting for him. And so this is not just Jesus coming onto a crowd, but a crowd looking for Jesus. He's been gone, and there's a sense of anticipation as he returns. And I know they might not be totally sincere, of course. Uh, They might just be waiting to see what Jesus did next. But at least it's sort of takes our guard down as we're thinking about Israel. If we have suspicions from what we're reading so far, because even though we've seen there are all these people rejecting Jesus, there's still some people from Israel who are interested in him. And we meet one in particular in verse 41, who is actually very surprising. Luke says, and there came a man named Jairus. And we should at least underline that, his name, Jairus, because we don't always get people's names in the gospels. In fact, we don't get many. If you just think about all the people Jesus saved so far, you realize we didn't get names for most of them. The last couple chapters, there was the centurion. What's his name? We don't know. The widow and her son don't have their names. The sinful woman, even. The man with the demon. The last story we read, he's just a man with a demon. And so the fact that Jairus is named is a little unusual. And it might be because he was known in the early church that people reading this were like, oh, Jairus, oh yeah, I've heard of him. Or it could just be that his name is significant for this story because Jairus means he who Yahweh enlightens. And I think that's kind of the theme in this story. This is someone Yahweh is enlightening. And he needs enlightening, for sure. First of all, because even though he's a religious leader, he's a member of a group that very clearly is squarely against Jesus so far. You see how Luke says, and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And so this is not just another Jewish person who was part of the crowd. This is someone who was in charge of what happened in the synagogue. And these kinds of leaders are not portrayed positively so far in Luke. I mean, these are the people 
at the forefront of rejecting Jesus. And he's from Capernaum too, which was where the leaders came from who were pleading with Jesus on behalf of the centurion earlier, Luke 7, verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant, and probably he was one of them. And that means he was at least a little confused about Jesus because they weren't getting what Jesus was about. And yet now he's in trouble and he's not coming to Jesus as if he were someone important now. And there's not a lot of talk about someone being worthy or not worthy. Luke says he's just falling at Jesus's feet in verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus's feet, which is actually kind of shocking uh, because falling at someone's feet in general is a sign of major respect. Even if you just think about you falling at someone's feet or someone falling at your feet, what would it take? And falling at Jesus's feet in the Gospel of Luke is definitely a good thing so far. Who else has fallen at Jesus's feet? Peter in Luke 5 falls at Jesus's feet when he realizes who Jesus is. And then you've got the demon-possessed man in the story before who fell at Jesus's feet. And so this is some sort of recognition of who Jesus is and a sign of humility and desperation as well, which is why he's begging Jesus, imploring him, my translation says. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, which is what the elders of the Jews did earlier for the centurion back in Luke 7, you remember. Though they're not on their faces and they're not falling at Jesus' feet, but they were pleading with Jesus to go to the centurion house. And the centurion was a Gentile who seems to have been saved in the end. If you remember, Jesus says he's amazed by his faith. And so we start this story here in Luke 8 with this Jewish person, a Jew's Jew, who represents the people opposing Jesus. And yet we see he's in the same kind of situation as the Gentile centurion earlier. And something's going on with him as well because his attitude to Jesus is very different than any religious leaders so far in that he's coming to Jesus like the outcasts we've seen coming in other parts of Luke. In fact, we paused the video on the story before this one and we paused the video here and we see the religious leader is in the same exact position before Jesus as the demon-possessed man was because he desperately needs Jesus's help. Luke says, verse 42, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. And remember that word daughter, that's gonna be an important word in this passage. Luke's gonna help us a little by making a comparison and that word is kind of key. But maybe first you can at least see the question, does the Jews rejection of Jesus and Jesus is going to the Gentiles, this transition which we're gonna see more clearly once we get to the book of Acts, means that there's no more hope for people who are Jews. And so I'm saying it's like Luke brings up an illustration here in verses 40 to 42 of someone who we would normally put in the same category as all these other people rejecting Jesus, and yet who is now coming to Jesus in a very similar way to these other outcasts who came to Jesus for help. And we saw the way Jesus responded to them but now, how is Jesus going to respond to him? Middle of verse 42, Luke tells us, as Jesus went. And so it's like there's not even a moment's hesitation here. We don't even get to hear what Jairus says. And we don't even read Jesus goes. Jairus comes, and Jesus is already going. Luke says, as Jesus went. But the thing is, 
as Jesus went, something happens. Luke tells us the people pressed around Jesus. And the word press comes from a word that means to choke or to suffocate. So feel the intensity here. It's the same word that was used earlier in verse 14. These are the only two times Luke uses it about those who hear and go their way and are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And it's used here to give us a picture. It's almost like a mob scene. Jesus is trying to get to this man's house, but the crowd is just all around Jesus, pressing in on Jesus, making movement difficult. They're unpredictable crowds, you know. They welcome Jesus, and now they're hindering Jesus's movement, which is a huge problem because Jairus's daughter's life is on the line. Luke says, verse 42, she was dying. And the particular way he writes that means she was in the process of dying, like she was on her way to die. And so Jairus, of course, is desperate. She's only 12. And he's thinking, Jesus needs to get there quick when the situation gets even a little worse. Because Luke says, and there was a woman. Verse 43, and there was a woman. And this woman is going to represent basically the opposite of Jairus. So one, the Jew's Jew, two, the opposite. She's the second main character, the one we're comparing Jairus and his daughter with. And now it's almost like Luke puts the Jairus story on pause for a minute, which should feel a little like when you're watching a movie and they switch from one scene to the other before there's a resolution and you're like, what happened? What happened? But Luke's pausing for a reason, because I think Jesus is going to use this woman to help Jairus, which is a surprise, because if Jairus and his daughter represent the Jew's Jew, this woman kind of represents the outcast, the Gentile. First of all, she's unimportant. She's not even named in this story like Jairus. It just says there was a woman. And worse, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, which should sound familiar, like Luke's doing everything he can to get it clicking for you. 12 years. He's making a link there, obviously, with number 12. And so God's designing an unusual situation in that this man's, this Jewish man's daughter is 12 years old, and this woman has had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I think that's God's way of being like, make sure you don't miss this. Do the comparison. Jairus's daughter is dying, and this woman's life is kind of like a living death, not just because having a discharge of blood is painful, which I'm sure it was. They, they say it was either a chronic menstrual disorder or uterine hemorrhage. In Mark's gospel, the phrase literally means a state of blood flow. So this is like a continuous problem for her, and clearly it was incurable. Luke tells us even though she had spent all her living on doctors, which must have pained Luke to write because he was a doctor, she could not be healed by anyone. Mark kind of adds a jab maybe at Luke when he tells a story because he's like, and they only made her problem worse, but Luke doesn't say that. And we could uh, talk about the hopelessness of all that and the pain for sure, and there's a place for that. It's sad, but probably more important is understanding what it meant for her. Because in the Old Testament, what it meant was that she was unclean. This is an unclean woman who can't get clean which is a hard concept for us to understand if we're not familiar with the Old Testament. But unclean in the Bible doesn't mean dirty. It's a little different. And what it means is explained most thoroughly back in a book of, uh, called Leviticus, which many of us skip when we're reading the Bible. But it's actually a very important book because you read in Leviticus that God is going to live with the people of Israel. And actually, if you know the story, that is what made Israel Israel. 
They were uh, just a nation. But what made Israel Israel was God's presence. And there's like this classic scene in Exodus where God says, you know what, I'm not going to live with Israel. I, I can't do it. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. You have to live with us. That's what makes us different. If you don't live with us, we're just like every other nation out there. And God relents and has Israel make something called a tabernacle. And that tabernacle was going to be like a little piece of heaven on earth. It was going to be like the Garden of Eden, going back to the Garden of Eden, kind of. Except the high priest could only go in, you know, got dressed up like Adam and only went in once a a year. And And yet, this was after the world was impacted by sin, which was what was making it so complicated. And so... Since God was going to live there in that unique way, after the fall, there needed to be things that happened so that Israel didn't die. Everything that came near God needed to be right, needed to be set apart, it needed to be holy for their safety, you understand. God's like, you could say, where does God live? 204 Tabernacle Lane. Like, I could take you there. And God was going to live in this tabernacle in the middle of Israel in order to give the world a picture of what heaven was like. And heaven is perfect, obviously. There's nothing wrong there. And yet there are all kinds of wrong things here on earth. And so to help Israel know how to survive and give that picture to the world, God divided things up into three main categories, basically. Clean, unclean, and holy. And holy is a word we know, but it means something set apart and ready to go into God's presence. Clean, on the other hand, is a little different. It's something that's in a state that can be made holy. It's not holy, but it's in a state that can be made holy. And so there were certain things you could do to get a clean thing holy so you could go with it into the presence of God or so you could go into the presence of God. But something that is unclean is different. Here's the problem. Unclean things couldn't be made holy. Something couldn't just jump from unclean to holy. It would first have to be made clean, and then once it was clean, then it could be made holy. And because we're not familiar with these rituals, we think that's maybe weird. Anybody's rituals seem weird when you're not familiar with them. But we actually work in a similar way. If you think about your child maybe coming in to eat dinner, and he's just been out playing in the mud, and he's like muddy all over, do you just let him sit down and eat? It's not wrong for him to be dirty. You don't say, you are dirty, that is sin. It's not wrong for him to be dirty, but it's not appropriate for him to eat at the dinner table like that. First, he has to be made clean, like literally. And so he goes up and takes a shower, But when he gets out of the shower, unless your family is, you know, a little different, he can't just sit down at the dinner table like that, right? He's got to put some clothes on first, and then he's ready. There's a process. But imagine now if somehow you could not make yourself clean, and think especially about what that would mean for a person who was an Israelite, because it's like, here's the Garden of Eden, God's home on earth. God has moved in. The presence of God is there. And you see people coming in, going out, coming in, going out. But you know you can't ever do that because you're unclean. 
and you can't get out of that state. You are constantly unclean and you can't get clean so you can be made holy, which is what made this woman's situation such a problem for her and for others too, because not only was she continually unclean, she was actually the kind of person who would make other people unclean as well, and they didn't want that, and so she was an outcast. She was like a leper, actually. In, in fact, I was listening to someone who was saying, there's pretty much no way if she had been married that she wouldn't have been divorced by this time, just the way most Jewish men thought. They're not gonna keep living with someone who they technically couldn't even sleep with without becoming unclean. And yet, you know, even much worse than being cut off from people was the fact that being unclean meant she wasn't able to go to the temple. She wasn't able to participate in, in sacrifice, in the sacrifice, sacrificial system. And she was separate from the presence of God and essentially forced to live her life like a Gentile. Moses said, what makes Israel distinct? It's your presence, God. She couldn't get near the temple. She couldn't fellowship with other Jews. Israel was supposed to be a holy nation. She couldn't be made holy. She's just like a Gentile. And like Jairus, she's desperate. And so somehow she finds a way to get near Jesus. But unlike Jairus, she can't come directly. Luke says, verse 44, she came up behind. And why did she come from behind? She doesn't want to be seen. There's a little bit of stealth to this. She doesn't want to be seen by the crowd, I'm sure, but also by Jesus. And she knows that she can't get too close to Jesus. That's why she just touches the fringe of his garment. Jews would wear these clothes with four tassels hanging from the end with these long strings. And Luke says that's the part she reached out and touched. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Why the fringe? Because again, she thinks she can't directly touch Jesus because she's unclean. And yet immediately she's healed, immediately, which must have been so exciting for her. But she didn't have very long to think about it because suddenly Jesus just stops everything. Verse 45. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Which is a strange question if you, if you think about it. For one thing, because you wouldn't normally feel someone touching the fringe of your, of your garment. I wonder if anybody's ever been pickpocketed. I was pickpocketed once in the border of Zimbabwe and I had no idea that it happened. And that's like my pocket. And for another, this is a strange question because I think Jesus knew. And you can debate that a little, I'm sure, but we've seen he has power over the sea, power over demons. Earlier in the gospel, he knows what's in the Pharisee's heart. Chapter six, verse eight, he says he knows someone's thoughts. So I think Jesus knows who touched him. That's not why he's asking. He's asking this question deliberately to cause a scene. You have to understand, Jesus wants a scene. And it was working because the next sentence says, all denied it, when all denied it. And obviously, since they're pressing on him, there must have been something in the way Jesus was asking this question that made them want to say no. We didn't touch you. Otherwise, why would they be denying it? And Luke tells us what Peter said to make sure that we notice how strange this is. Verse 45, when all denied it, Peter said, Master, like, uh, you see where we are? The crowds surround you and are pressing on you. <laughs> Remember that word means choke, like they're like right here. And I think there's maybe a little bit of urgency in Peter's voice, actually, because it's, it's already hard for them to get through the crowd to Jairus' house. And he's just seen this religious leader who he respects, like at Jesus' feet, probably crying, asking him to come. And now Jesus is stopping and, and asking, 
and people are denying. And you can see Jesus is really concerned about this and it's becoming this scene. And maybe Peter's feeling like, we do not have time for this. We do not have time for this. And I can't imagine how Jairus is feeling. But Jesus makes clear, no, something significant has happened here. Verse 46, but Jesus said, someone touch me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And that's one of those verses in the Bible that just make you say, mm, that's interesting, power going out from Jesus. But I think at least it makes clear that what's going on in this moment is intentional. If Jesus knows that power has gone out from him, he knows who this woman is. And she knows he knows. Verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. In other words, Jesus has gotten her to the same exact place Jairus was in the beginning of the story. She's fallen down before Jesus. Partly for her sake, I'm sure, since she's been shamed so long, Jesus wants the crowd to know what happened so they can welcome, welcome her back. But also, I, I tend to think maybe even more for Jairus to see this woman in the same position he was moments before, only this is after the healing now. And he knows that because Luke says she declares, verse 47, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared, and that's the main verb in the sentence. So it's the big thing going on. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And it's like Jesus wants this woman as a witness, just like he wanted that demon possessed man to be a witness. And, you know, he wants to make a statement about her, verse 48, which I think is the point. And he said to her, daughter, which is a term of affection, of course. He's saying she's his family. When she, since she had been in a well-known outcast for the past 12 years, must have been huge for her. But the most important thing is, how did it happen? Jesus explains, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And the word well there is literally the word saved. Your faith has saved you. And I think Jesus is not just talking about physical healing. Maybe that's first, your faith has healed you. But this is the same thing he said to that sinful woman back in Luke 7, verse 50. And this is something that Luke's been showing us, Jesus emphasizing over and over again. This is just one more example you can add to the list of Jesus saving people you wouldn't expect. Gentiles, outcasts, sinners, how? Faith. Luke 5, Verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Luke chapter 7, verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Luke chapter 7, verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke chapter 17, verse 19, rise up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Luke chapter 18, verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And you kind of have to hear all of those together because it's like Luke is drawing all these stories together that highlight Jesus stressing the very thing Luke's friend Paul was going around the world teaching. <laughs> Salvation by faith alone. This is the gospel. How does God save people through what Jesus does? Through faith, by faith. And maybe let me get a little technical for a minute because how are we saved? What was Paul's message? How are we saved? It's by faith. And by we, I mean us, Gentiles. How are we saved? Because that's one of the issues the New Testament's constantly addressing. How are people who are reading the Old Testament 
from the outside saved, people who were not the nation of Israel, people who have been called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, called not part of God's people by people who thought they were God's people, people who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and people who were strangers to the covenants of promise, who have no hope and without God in the world. How are we saved? Listen to Paul. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's like, I'm not a Gentile sinner. Yet we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul was giving his life to proclaim that message, letting everyone know this is the gospel. You are saved by faith. If you have faith in Jesus, you are saved. You are saved. There's nothing more you need to do to be saved. God really wants you to know that. If you want to be saved, you must come to Jesus in faith. As a Gentile, that's your only hope. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We learn that from Paul, but Luke's like, we see that in Jesus. <laughs> He's telling these stories to show that Jesus has come to save sinners, not through them becoming Jews and keeping the law, but through them coming to Jesus in faith. But what about Jews? <laughs> you know, if that's how Jesus is saving us, the sinner, the outcast, the Gentile, what about people who aren't? Does the fact that he didn't establish the kingdom they were expecting right away and that we see Jesus saving all these Gentiles and outcasts apart from the law mean he's somehow forgotten Israel? Because if we think about Jairus, at first it kind of felt like that. I bet it kind of felt like that to him. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, Jesus Someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And you hear the word daughter, right? Daughter. I told you to keep an eye on that word daughter. Because the question is, did Jesus trying to save the one daughter, the Gentile daughter, mean he was giving up on the other daughter? Because these people thought so. They come and say, your daughter's dead. Don't, don't trouble Jesus, it's over. But they're wrong because Luke tells us, but Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And it's so cool, will be well, because that's the same exact word, well, saved, that he used for the other woman too. And so it's kind of like Jesus has set this all up to teach Jairus how this works. Because he knows the religious leaders in his day were totally getting this wrong and were trusting in their Jewishness for salvation, which is why they got so upset they wanted to kill him when he started preaching in his hometown in Nazareth, and why they grumbled when they saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and why they got so angry when he healed people on the Sabbath, and why they weren't listening to him, because why would they need to listen to someone like that? They were keeping the law. They were Jews. Wasn't that enough? You know, if you think it's difficult to save someone who's a sinner, <laughs> It's much more difficult to save someone who thinks he's not. Once someone has become self-righteous, it is so hard to get them to hear God. And honestly, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, like Jairus, are a perfect illustration of that because they were reading the Old Testament. And if there's one thing the Old Testament makes clear, it's that we can't save ourselves. 
If you come out of the Old Testament thinking, oh yeah, we just need to keep the law a little better, you need to come on Wednesday nights. Because like that is clear, the Old Testament is not teaching that. And yet these religious leaders are missing the whole point. And thinking that salvation was through something they do, while in the Old Testament there might be parts that are difficult, but one thing that is not difficult is seeing that the fundamental way people are saved is not different. Salvation has always been through faith in God's promises, and specifically his promised Messiah. And in Romans and Galatians, Paul proves that. Read Romans 4, read Galatians 3. Honestly, actually, just read Exodus 20. But in spite of how clearly God communicated that through the entire Old Testament, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were still pretty much thinking they're being Jew, a Jew and they're keeping the law was enough. And I'm sure that's how Jairus thought. In fact, I think normally that would have been almost like an unshakable conviction for him, which is why Jesus sets this whole scene up to shake it. First, by drawing his attention to this woman whom Jairus would have known and done everything he could to avoid normally and holding her up as an example and saying, your faith has saved you. And then by allowing this situation with his daughter to become so hopeless that Jairus has no other option so Jesus can make this point crystal clear to him. What do I do now, Jesus? What do I do now? What do I do? Don't fear. Only believe. And she will be well. You hear that, right? Only believe. Don't fear. Only believe. Faith alone, Jairus. And it's funny because this is, again, a point Luke's hammering. If we go back to that situation on the boat with the disciples, we're, we're looking at this story by itself, but we could look at these stories as a collection, all kind of going together. Because as the disciples are on the boat in the middle of the storm, they're so afraid. Same issue. And what does Jesus ask them or say to them? It's more of a rebuke. He says, where is your faith? You are afraid. Stop. You need to believe. You need to believe. You want to be my disciples? Stop being afraid. You need to believe. This is something Jesus clearly wants his followers to know. God is keeping his promises through him, even in the middle of what looks like to be a storm. What is their job? Don't fear. Only believe. And then actually in the story right before this one, Jesus heals the demon-possessed man and people find out in verse 37, what do they do? Look at it. Luke says, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Why? For they were seized with great fear. So they didn't believe. Why? Because they were afraid. And now this woman is healed. What do you think is her temptation? As Jesus is like, who touched me? And everyone's denying it. What do you think she would have been tempted to do? If they don't want to admit it, they're denying it. She would have been tempted to run, right? To be afraid, to go away. I mean, she's been an outcast for 12 years and now she's getting called out in front of everyone and she doesn't know exactly what Jesus is thinking and we see she's trembling, but she doesn't allow that fear to control her. She comes to Jesus in faith and he says, she's saved. And now Jesus is looking at this Jew's Jew who up to this point, if he was like most of his friends, would have been so confident and not even thinking that there could possibly be a problem in his relationship with God. And looking at this woman who he thought was almost disgusting, and Jesus is saying, Jairus, Jairus, now you're desperate. Now you're in a situation that you realize you have no control over, 
and your eyes are becoming open and your temptation is to become afraid, what do you do? What do you do? Don't fear because salvation works the same exact way for you too. Don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. The fact that Jesus is making this transition in the Gospels and especially Acts to the Gentiles doesn't mean Jews couldn't be saved. They just needed to stop trusting their Jewishness and start putting their trust in Jesus like everyone else. And you know, Jairus seems to listen because they keep walking. And in verse 51, Luke tells us when they, Jesus came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And I'm not sure why exactly it was just Peter and these other two. In the story, it's another link between the woman and Jairus's daughter because Peter's called out there and he's pointed out here too. But I'm not sure why they're the only ones. It might have been just practical because Jesus has a crowd with him and the house couldn't have been that big. And there were already people there. In fact, at first, the way Luke describes it, when Jesus enters, it looks almost like chaos because everyone's crying, verse 52. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep for she's not dead, but sleeping. Which sounded so strange for him to say, right? He's like, wait, why are you guys crying? Don't weep. That sounds like the worst possible thing you could say when a little girl's died. It sounds a little bit like don't fear when you're in the middle of a, a storm, right? Or don't fear and don't weep when the Messiah's come and he's been crucified and you don't see him establishing the kingdom the Old Testament promised. How's that even possible, you know? Why wouldn't someone think this girl's death was the end for her? Why wouldn't someone think the Jews' rejection of Jesus was the end for Israel? It's only possible if you believe Jesus, right? Which, of course, the crowd didn't. And so when Jesus speaks, they stop crying and start laughing at him, verse 53. And they laughed at him, scoffed at him, really, knowing that she was dead. Which I'm sure Jesus knew as well. Obviously, he's not being naive when he says she's sleeping. It's just that death is not death for Jesus. But while overcoming death is not difficult for Jesus, it would have been hard for Jairus to believe. And so this is like a test for him. Is he willing to believe what Jesus says? That Jesus is able to do things when he makes promises that seem so shocking. And to believe when the people around him mock Jesus for the claims he's making. Because really any Jew that was going to be saved by Jesus, that's exactly what was going to happen. This is what it was going to take to exercise faith in Jesus. And it seems like Jairus did because Jairus doesn't stop Jesus and death doesn't stop Jesus either. Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. Which again is just so awesome because, you know, it doesn't even seem hard to Jesus here. In fact, I kind of picture death as like a kidnapper who's come into this house, this terrible, fearsome robber who's just come into this home and he hasn't cared about anyone. And he's taking this little girl and he's kind of slung her over his back and he's on his way out laughing to himself when in walks Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth. And he says, he doesn't even shout, he just speaks, come back. Now give her up. And this evil kidnapper turns around at that moment and lets her go. No questions asked. Jesus has that kind of power. And verse 55, the little girl saved, Luke says, and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat almost nonchalant, right? She's probably hungry after all that. You know, she, she just died. And so while it looked impossible, and for a while must have seemed to Jairus to be impossible, it must have seemed like Jesus focusing on saving the daughter who was an outcast was gonna keep him from saving this Jewish daughter of his. 
It didn't. It didn't. It just enabled Jesus to more clearly help Jairus understand how salvation was supposed to work from the beginning. No matter who you are, you're saved by faith. Whether you are Israel or whether you are not, with Jesus coming, that has not changed. Though, right now, what seems to be changing as we read Luke, honestly, is that because, for the most part, the nation wouldn't do that, the religious leaders wouldn't submit, we're watching Jesus in Luke and in, into Acts slowly transitioning for a time from focusing on the nation of Israel as a nation to what he's going to do among Gentiles and in the church. Which I think may be why he told the Gentile man whom, from whom he cast out the demons to go home and declare how much God had done for him but told Jairus and his wife, verse 56, not to say anything. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happened. Which, of course, must have been basically impossible since people knew the girl was dead, and now she's alive, and Jesus, like, just left the room. But I think it's maybe supposed to get people thinking. If, if Jesus sends the Gentile back, and if he stops the whole crowd to have this outcast explain what happened, why does he tell this religious leader not to talk? Especially because in the next story, he's going to send the 12 out to heal and proclaim the kingdom. I'm not sure, honestly, but maybe partially as an illustration of how it's going to work in the future with the gospel being proclaimed primarily by outcasts. And maybe also because he knows at that point if the religious leader does much talking, the crowd is going to misunderstanding how salvation's working, and you don't want to misunderstand that because, honestly, while you might have a lot of questions about the Bible, it's a big book, one thing you should not have any questions about is how does salvation work? God is saving people who need to be saved. He's keeping all of the promises that he made through Jesus, every single one of them. And what do you need to do? You don't have to become a Jew, and you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn it. You just have to stop being so scared and believe it. Do you believe it? Will you believe Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending a savior for people who need a savior. We are people who who need a savior. We cannot save ourselves. Jesus, we do not deserve to have you save us. We, we deserve to be condemned. But you are kind and you are good. And you, you are willing to save those who come to you in faith. We come to you now, Lord. Thanking you for the salvation that you provided. Asking that you would continue to save us. And looking forward to the day when, it's, when, when we see you. And we're looking back. And you have completely and fully forever provided the salvation that we long for and we read about in the scripture. Thank you for keeping your promises. We pray this in your name. Amen.